Hello and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza. And I'm Chris Grayton. And we're here with Tina Perohit, who is a professor of religion at Boston University, specializing in Muslim and Hindu devotional literature, religious identity formation, and modern Islam. She's the author of The Aga Khan Case, Religion and Identity in Colonial India, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2012. And she's now working on a second book project titled Making Islam Modern. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Thank you, Shireen. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Thanks for coming on. Today's conversation is about inclusion and exclusion in Islamic modernist thought. It's part of Tina's second book project and focuses on Muhammad Iqbal and Mirza Ghulam Ahmad and the Ahmadi sect. Setting the stage, there were many political figures in late 19th, early 20th century South Asia who were articulating their politics from within a religious tradition. So who was Muhammad Iqbal, who was Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, and who are the Ahmadis? So Muhammad Iqbal was an Indian uh, Muslim politician, poet, um, Muslim political leader and ideologue uh, who was pretty active uh, mostly in the early 20th century. Um, and he's most well known today as um, the founder of the idea of Pakistan. And in the 1930s, he, w- he certainly came up with an idea of a separate territory for Muslims. But there is some debate among scholars as to whether this was really a nation state or just an idea of territory. Um, But he was, in many Mm. ways, the most predominant Muslim intellectual figure in colonial India. Mirza Ghulam Ahmed was also an Indian religious leader and not as famous or as well known and much more controversial than Muhammad Iqbal. Mm -hmm. He was born in Qadian, Punjab in 1834, and he instigated a lot of controversy because... He, in 1888, he was claimed to receive God's revelation and called on Muslims to pledge their allegiance to him and to uh, him and a new movement to reform Islam. He claimed that he was the promised ma- Messiah, the Mahdi of the Muslims, and that he was in fact appeared in the likeness, and this is, the, this is an issue of some debate, of both Jesus as well as a prophet Muhammad. And so the Ahmadis became the group that followed him right, his over followers. time. His yeah. followers, yeah. And our, our listeners might remember that relatively recently in the news, Ahmadis came even into the U.S. news cycle a little bit because Maharshala Ali won a Oscar and uh, it was great news and, and a celebration for many people in the Muslim world, including in Pakistan, until the realization that he was in fact Ahmadi Muslim, right? Right. And then the famous tweet from one of the ministers of Pakistan, I can't remember, who basically withdrew her tweet right. after yeah. after there was this awareness or realization. Um, and so right. this idea, this this question of whether Ahmadis are included or excluded within uh, the Muslim community is uh, dating back to about almost 100 years ago. This The, the events we're going to be talking about yeah. in today's podcast, but are still very much relevant. Today. Yes, yes. Definitely. And I think we'll talk about that over the course of the podcast in, in terms of how um, it, the same questions are relevant today. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of how Mirza Ghulam Ahmad would fit into this world of Muhammad Iqbal and Muslim political thought? Yeah. So this was a period, um, the 19th century was a period where religious groups, whether Hindu or Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, they were all defining themselves in new ways. Mm-hmm. There was a specific 
there was a new cultural landscape with the British um, with British rule and. In my view, there were two main groups that really did um, set the set the terms for how religion was discussed and uh, debated, and mm. those were the British groups that were primarily missionaries as well as the Orientalists, mm -hmm. mm. and they sort of set they gave they gave these different religious groups the language. So, what I mean by that is there are certain categories such as belief or text mm. or origins, scripture. These these sort of terms became the normative terms in which these different communities were defining themselves. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. like I said, this was sort of across the board with Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists. But the Muslims had, I, I think, something very specific to the ways in which they were doing, engaging in this process of defining and redefining in the 19th century. And I think that was really um, had to do with a larger kind of perhaps existential problem that was within South Asia and outside, which is the kind of the collapse of the three great empires, mm. right? So the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Mughal Empire, the Safavid Empire, empire the, not necessarily the collapse, but the sort of just changing landscape. And I thought, and I, it seems to me that um, that the reform that came from Muslims was slightly different because there was this longer story and longer history. And there had also been a longer history of tajdeed, of reform itself mm -hmm. in the history right. of Islam. Right. So I thought that, so in my view, it seems that, that there's something very similar to the different religious groups that in ways in which they were defining religion, but also something different. And so there were several types of groups that emerged. Um, the modernists, you were asking who Iqbal was as part yeah. of this group of people who um, intellectuals, political figures who wanted to really reconcile modern European ideas with traditional concepts. Mm -hmm. Then there were some groups that were one would define as perhaps tradi traditionalist. These were groups such as the Deobandis, um, more sort of ulama based and wanted to reform along the lines of morality, education, piety. And then there was a third group, which were the Ahmadis, and they were very different. And mm -hmm. their reform was really based on the charismatic leader and belief in this figure, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And so, you, you, as you mentioned, there's there's different strains uh, of thinking that in some way are all modernists, even the traditionalists are somehow reacting to this new modern context. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the questions that uh, is, is arising is this uh, crisis of, of what we might call unity, right? That, that yeah. arises out of the political fragmentation mm -hmm. or the political changes in South Asia in particular. Um, and Muhammad Iqbal is a, a leading figure in sort of um, articulating uh, an idea uh, of Muslim unity uh, in South right. Asia. Sociopolitical unity, Sociopolitical unity, mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe you could read us the quote that you uh, put at uh, the start of your your article about Muhammad Iqbal uh, and his uh, engagement uh, with the Ahmadis. Go ahead, Tina. Religious adventurers set up different sects and fraternities, ever quarreling with one another. And then there are castes and subcastes like the Hindus. Surely we have out-Hindued the Hindu himself. We are suffering from a double caste system, the religious caste system, sectarianism, and the social caste system, which we have either learned or inherited from the Hindus. This is one of the quiet ways in which conquered nations revenge themselves on their conquerors. I condemn this accursed religious and social sectarianism. I condemn it in the name of God, in the name of humanity, in the name of Moses, in the name of Jesus Christ, and in the name of him, a thrill of emotion passes through the very fiber of my soul when I think of that exalted name. Yes, in the name of him who brought the final message of freedom, 
and equality to mankind. Islam is one and indivisible. It brooks no distinctions. There are no Wahhabis, Shi'is, Mirzais, or Sunnis in Islam. And that reference to Mirzais is a reference to the is the is a name for the Ahmadis. Right. It's very interesting how in the rhetoric he uses, of course, in articulating this idea of unity. Yes, yes. That unity is based on homogeneity. Muslims must all be the same, right? They cannot, there cannot be these differences and there cannot be these separations. And so in many ways, the, the piece that he writes that it, the subject of the article is really, is an extension of that particular concern of difference, right? Mirza Ghulam Ahmed did not just have a different set of beliefs, but in fact, he was a, a figure who demanded loyalty to him as, as a prophet, right? And, and according to that quote that I just read from, with Muhammad, that was the end of prophecy, right? And so, so, so Muhammad Iqbal's uh, conception of unity is one that is that relies on this idea of finality of prophecy, but it also re relies on coherence of the community. It relies on hom homogeneity of all Muslims. And so differences are clearly not appreciated. There are so many minority Muslim communities in South Asia. How did Iqbal react to other groups, for example, the Aga Khan community? So this is, this is the, uh, one very interesting um, comparison that I actually explore in, in another article. Um, in the same piece that's the subject of this, um, this discussion, you know, he writes um, this whole long diatribe against the Ahmadis, why they're heretics and, you know, and, and why they should be considered, um, why they shouldn't be considered Muslims. And the interesting thing is at the end of the piece, he makes a reference to the Aga Khan, and he actually talks about how the Aga Khan is a sort of exemplary leader, and Ismailis are exemplary Muslims, which, of course, in, in my view, begs the question, because there are so many parallels between the Ismailis and the Ahmadis in some ways, right? Um, they each have a community that's based on a charismatic leader whose authority has been um, sustained. Um, you know, through 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 in, whose, whose charismatic authority has been transferred and continues to remain to this day. And um, they both have been considered somewhat marginal. And in fact, in that same piece, Iqbal actually talks about how their their views are somewhat, um, you know, they deter huh. from the mainstream. Mm -hmm. Right. He says that. But in fact, it's it's very interesting that I think he basically thinks that the the Ismailis are progressive. Hmm. And they fit with his progressive vision of history and forward-looking, which mm -hmm. is um, vision of the ways in which Muslims should, you know, should conduct themselves, which I think is a very modernist position. However, um, and, he, and, and, and the contrast is, of course, with Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, mm -hmm. whom he really perceives as backward. And mm. this is really an argument that I take up in an, a, a, at length because he uses this language about how uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed is, is, is stuck in the fog of Magianism. Mm. And, and those people who follow him are, are stuck in the medieval past. So there's this language and rhetoric of, of basically retrograde um, beliefs mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. he ascribes to one community and and really believes with the Ismailis are complete opposite. Mm -hmm. so. so can we flesh that out a little more? This, uh, you know, the basis of this uh, uh, charge of heresy. Yeah. Um, we've already mentioned that one of the purported reasons why Ahmadis were not to be included among Muslims, according to Muhammad Iqbal, is that 
is is this claim to prophecy, yeah. right? And and the idea that Muhammad was the last prophet, yes. and that there will be no prophet after yes. him. Um, so did it really hinge on that, or what was perhaps the larger implication of that that made um, the Ahmadis so offensive to Muhammad Iqbal in the way that Ismailis were not? Yeah. So um, for this, I'm actually picking up on um, a, a conversation that's been started by other scholars. So I'm not the first to address this issue. Uh, I just have a new perspective that I add to it. Mm -hmm. um, so you have, for example, the historian Aisha Jalal, who mm -hmm. has made the argument that we have to understand Iqbal's anti-Amadi position as, um, as an extension of his personal and political grievances with Amadi leaders hmm. during a specific moment in the hmm. 1930s when he was um, serving on the All India Kashmir Committee. Okay, uh, Iqbal Singh Sivya has written a different kind of argument, basically saying that this is really about this doctrine of Katamin Nabuat, the finality of prophecy, and which is not so much exclusively theological for him, but he really sees that for Iqbal, the Amadi continuous prophecy disempowers the individual and the community and society, and that's his main you mm. know, issue. Mm -hmm. And then there are a couple others who have who've made arguments. So for me, I'm actually picking up on this thread of people trying to figure out why such a vociferous, such a you know angry diatribe. Yeah. And um, so what I do is I I try to think about heresy as a theoretical pro as a problem, mm -hmm. and. Um, heresy not so much as a theological issue, issue but as a sociological issue. So I draw on, in this piece that, um, that you both have read, I draw on the work of some uh, sociologists who theorize the idea of the heretic and who the heretic is. Mm. And so I read um, figures like Zimmel and George Zito as well as Bourdieu to look at how we can think about the heretic, not so much as a theological, as somebody who theologically digresses, but somebody who has, um, who has, who has posed a sort of social threat and as, as to, a, to, to group unity, but also somebody who's intimately connected to the community. One interesting piece here, um, which I haven't yet mentioned, is that Iqbal's family, his father, took the oath of allegiance to Mirza Ghulam Ahmed in 1891. That's so interesting. Mm. And as early as like the 1900, in 1910, Iqbal also was defending Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. So there's a shift that starts to take place in the 1930s. Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, people like me and other scholars have been trying to to work out and trying to figure out. Right. Speaking to that, as, as Aisha Jalal has argued, those contingencies that mm -hmm. um, lead to the out, a different outcome, I guess, in this case um, than in other cases yeah. where Muhammad Iqbal might have had a similar reaction but did not. Welcome back. I'm Shireen Hamza here with Tina Perohit and Chris Grayton. We just listened to a recording of Rajas, a band led by Rajna Swaminathan. 
Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to find out more about uh, that band, and we appreciate them sharing their music with us today. Absolutely. So far, we've been talking a little bit about how Muhammad Iqbal, one of many who exemplify the Muslim modernist reform movement, would object to somebody like Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, perhaps more because of the social threat posed from within his Muslim community than necessarily because of a theological difference. I found it striking that in your article, Muhammad Iqbal's issue with uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmad seems parallel to something Ibn Arabi said, mm-hmm. which is that he feels that some some saints can feel the sense of nubuwa of prophecy, mm-hmm. if they reach a, a state of, um, I guess, not enlightenment, but a spiritual state. Muhammad Iqbal has a very different take on that than he does on Mirza Ghulam Ahmad. Why is that? Yeah. So um, so that's the point of comparison for me and really sort of the crux of my own argument mm. that Iqbal sets out to say that uh, Mirza Ghulam Ahmed violates prophecy. But in the same piece, he draws this extensive analysis about Ibn Arabi and his claims to prophetic consciousness. And he has no issue with it. Right. Um, and in that same piece, in that same discussion, he talks about the fact that he actually has no issue with it because it is a private matter. Mm. And he uses that word. Mm-hmm. And so I take this problem of uh, issue of privacy and I, and I compare it with the way he discusses Mirza Ghulam Ahmed. And in fact, we ca- I come to you know make the point that actually his issue with Mirza Ghulam Ahmed is not actually the claim to prophetic consciousness or how whatever you want to call that term, claim to prophecy, prophetic consciousness, but it's the fact that he made it public. Mm-hmm. He was public about it. He got a following, um, right. you know, all of these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And that becomes mm-hmm. the threat to unity, right? Mm-hmm. And that becomes the sort of, um, his sort of preoccupation of, okay, what is this backward behavior? People are following him and all of these sorts of things. So it's really that... What I really noticed was that difference between the public and private. So as we're getting closer to the end of our interview, I want to slowly pull out a little bit and zoom out uh, from the case we're looking at. Uh, And so, Tina, maybe you could explain further the larger political context uh, that Muhammad Iqbal is writing in during this time. And what were the stakes for this question of inclusion or exclusion of Ahmadis mm-hmm. within the fold at that time. Yeah, so the larger political context. Muhammad Iqbal was, was um, you know, he was ideologically separated from, from the Congress, and he, was, he became a leader and spokesman for, for the Muslims, and that kind of came into, and specifically in the form of his presidency of as as president of the All Indian Muslim League in the night in 1930, mm-hmm. and that's actually the time, and that's why it's important that that last quote that or that quote you had me read about you know about the unity of Muslims. I think it's really important to think about that unity of like the social unity in the context of you know where he is at politically and what his vision is. And again, I think one of the things we're talking about how Iqbal is remembered today as the founder of Pakistan, um, or the idea of Pakistan. Um, I. You know, I don't know how accurate that is. Um, he certainly wanted a state and he wanted a territory and a specific territory for Muslims, mm-hmm. right? In the 1930s, his famous address, um, or 
he in yeah 1930 itself he says he would like to see Punjab Northwest Frontier Sindh and Baluchistan amalgamated into a single state self government within the British Empire or without the British Empire or without the British Empire the formation of a consolidation of Northwest Indian Muslim state appears to me the final destiny of Muslims at least of Northwest India so he envisioned a territory mm-hmm. and so for that cohesion and um, all of these things were really important. So that's the sort of, that's where he is politically. But in his writings, this discussion, um, especially his writings in the reconstruction of religious thought in Islam, what is so interesting is that his, this political position is connected in some way to his writings about social unity, but the language he actually uses is the language of Tawheed. Hmm. And which, of course, is actually, you know, a Quranic idea of theological unity. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the arguments that I'm actually um, now working on and looking at um, not just with Iqbal, but other modernist thinkers and how this idea of Tawheed, the unity, um, what, what was originally the unity of God, um, shifts in meaning to represent um, or to signify the unity of people, mm-hmm. social unity. Mm. So not just to be Iqbal, but even earlier, um, we have modernists that start to write about Tawheed in this new way, which is about so- socio-political unity. And I think, um, and, 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 and Iqbal really employs, deploys that same, that same logic. This concept of new deployments of theological terms from within Islam or Quranic terms, is one that a lot of our listeners maybe have associated with Abdo or Rashid Rida or um, Jamaluddin al-Afghani or maybe Sir Sayyid Ahmad Khan and Iqbal. But for for a lot of listeners, it will be a surprise to hear Mirza Ghulam Ahmad spoken of as part of the same goal of Muslim renewal. Um, why is it that these histories are separated, and how have you seen that happening? Yeah, so why do we have these canonical figures that we all know about in some way, and why is it we don't really know about Mirza Ghulam Ahmed's positions on, on these same topics? Mm-hmm. I think in some ways it has to do with the modernist project itself. So some of these key figures that we're talking about, Alaf Ghani and Abdu, Sayyid Ahmed Khan and Iqbal, um, they were doing the as we've talked as you, you know we've talked about a little bit in, uh, today. They've been doing they they were defining Islam in new um, in new ways that were you know politically motivated that were also responding to the new cultural environment. They were also drawing on colonial forms of knowledge mm-hmm. such as like la- you know the language and religion, but also like racial categories and things like that that were dominant in the 19th century. Hmm. And so they took this term tawhid, I think it became really important for them to, and to to use this term and recast it. I, I know I, I'm going to answer the specific question that you're asking, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of what I think is a background Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. So this Tawheed idea that I was talking about, um, this unity, as the social political unity, again, I think that that term was getting used in opposition to the West or as a kind of defining against the West. and so Abdus, the Abdus Theology of Unity is a really good example of that, right? The, the famous treatise, Theology of Unity, um, which is not really about religion at all, but it's about the community that's breaking up, right? Um, and so 
when these modernists are writing, these canonical modernists, let's call them, um, their unity relies on this conformism that I was talking about, um, a certain understanding of Islam. Um, and there's also very strong critiques of certain of popular religious practices, of Sufis, of the Shia, mm -hmm. that are kind of built into their arguments and into their logic. So this modernist Islam is very Sunni in orientation and only in orientation, not because, yeah, it's interesting because they actually, all of them are not Sunni, right? I mean, Jamal al Afghani was not Sunni, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. that was the sort of performance or that was the way in which he cast himself, right, as a sort of defender of Sunni Islam. But they, their, their definitions became, that were drawn from Orientalists and colonial ideas, I think those became normative. Mm. And even though Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, he, he wrote, so much and wrote quite a bit even on Tawheed, mm -hmm. he doesn't make it into this um, to this story and into this these canonical thinkers because precisely for the reasons that I was saying earlier, which is to say that because in fact this continuous prophecy issue or the fact that he claimed to be prophet is what actually was really in tension with this with what the canonical modernists were saying, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. right? Which brings me to my kind of second big point, and this is the way I'm rethinking the modernist project, is that I think that um, one really important angle and perspective to think about this problem that you address is rivalry. Hmm. I think there was just a lot of rivalry and this goes back to the problem of, of authority. So with, you know, with this new, with, with the, the fall of the Muslim empires and, you know, the rise of colonial rule, there's this sort of question of religion, uh, the question of political authority slash religious authority is all kind of up for grabs. And I think these modernists are all trying to claim this kind of yeah. authority, authoritative position. And so there's a lot of rivalry. And I think Iqbal and Mirza Ghulam Ahmed have that. I think Afghani had that with Syed Ahmed Khan, and and that's his big polemic against Syed Ahmed Khan. Mm -hmm. um, and so these are some of the questions that I'm trying to think about as in my next project or in the current project. Well, it's a really fascinating project, and of course, where you mentioned the the cross pollination of Orientalism and the construction of orthodoxy during this period, I, I mean. Another reason why we might not know about figures like Mirza Ghulam Ahmad is not just because there was an attempt at excluding him mm -hmm. from his peers, so to speak, the other uh, Islamic modernists, but also because the, the foundations of a lot of the scholarship are rooted in sort of yes. these normative definitions of Islam um, that, that took shape within the same period. That's something I've really liked in our discussion today. It's something that ties in well with a forthcoming episode with Jamil Aydin, where he tackles the very, the very formation of the idea of the Muslim world uh, as, a, as a coherent concept. It's a really uh, interesting development in the field of Islamic studies uh, that's going on right now, and we're really happy. Yeah, and I want to say that I will, I completely piggyback on Jamil Aydin's argument about Muslim world with the idea of Islam. And I would say that just as he talks about the, the Muslim world coming together in this late 19th century moment, I think this idea of Islam as unity mm -hmm. comes together at this moment for the same, you know, for a lot of the same reasons that he's talking about, too. So.
theological difference between the mainstream of the Ahmadis and between, say, Sunni Islam has actually formed a point of contention in the 1970s as Pakistan made it illegal for Ahmadis to call themselves Muslims. And um, because of that and because of how public this conversation has been, people following Mirza Ghulam Ahmad's teachings have often been persecuted, sometimes very violently, by civilians in Pakistan. And sometimes the government has not taken any action against those who have done so. So how does this concept of heresy that has been connected to this history of systematic exclusion of the Ahmadis in Pakistan find its roots in this conversation we're having? Yeah, so Iqbal wrote Islam and Ahmadism in 1935, right? And then I think that the other really big moment where where the Ahmadis became um, there were there was another kind of big flare up about around the Ahmadi issue where it was in the 1950s. That's when Maududi wrote Qadiani Masla, which is a, a piece again um, in which he you know denounced the Ahmadis, and mm. in fact he cites that 1935 piece in there. Mm. Right. So there was a, there were also that year there were also anti Ahmadi riots. Okay. So there's two things happening. You have the sort of modernist. I mean, Maududi is now an Islamist, but I would say there's the, there are roots and connections back into modernism. But you have the sort of writings about the Ahmadis, and then now with the nation state form, you have the sort of active persecution of the of the actual community. Mm-hmm. So in in 1953, there were uh, these uh, famous anti Ahmadi riots, and then again in the 70s that you're referring referring to, um, the political group Errar as well as Jamaat the Islami, they um, they led a violent campaign against the Ahmadis at that time too. And I, I believe it was at that time that there were pressures to enact constitutional changes. And that's the moment in which Ahmadis were declared as non-Muslims, right? And then in the 80s with Zia al-Huk, there, there was an ordinance which made it legal for Ahmadis to preach or profess their beliefs. So it's kind of gotten worse over time. Um, but I would say that this question of Ahmadi was debated. These are shifting. These are very different political climates, right? Mm-hmm. 1930s colonial India, 1950s, yeah. right? Nascent, nation, nascent kind of the new state and the 1970s, 1980s. Right. But um, but the language of the violation of prophecy, that 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 logic is still there. Like mm-hmm. that's the that's the logic that's getting invoked. Right. Mm-hmm. This is the who are the who are Ahmadis? They violate. They violate the fundamental idea of finality of prophecy. Mm-hmm. So that that sort of that 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 has endured. So I would say that this um, argument of Amadis as theological dif- as deviance makes it makes it really important for us to kind of remember that um, there's this long history, and that I wouldn't say it has its roots in this moment, but mm-hmm. there's this logic that got initiated at this moment mm-hmm. in 1935 mm-hmm. that's been that's been re-invoked and um, repeatedly, and in new ways because the po- political climate is shifting. Like I yeah. want, I don't right. want to say that this is the same thing all the time. Right, right, right. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for thank coming you. on the podcast thank and, you so much and for sharing having this me. Uh, ongoing research with us. Yeah. We look forward to uh, uh, the project as it, as it unfolds in the coming months and years yeah (laughs) hopefully not too many years thank you shireen absolutely any of our listeners who may be interested in reading more about this fascinating topic can check out a bibliography provided by tina 
on the Ottoman History Podcast website, where they can also find a number of other episodes about South Asia and hopefully more to come in the future.